asking um, telecommunications providers to essentially turn over a large amount of data that they held on their users uh, directly to the intelligence agencies who would then store that data and access it based on some internal controls, but essentially as, as they saw fit. We did all that democratic debate and yet you're saying, regardless of all that, which all happened in the 2000s, nonetheless, in secret, they were going around that entire debate and getting the data anyways. Welcome back to The Technology Pill, a podcast that looks at how technology is reshaping our lives every day and exploring the different ways that governments and companies use tech to increase their power. My name is Gus Hossein, and I'm the Executive Director at Privacy International. And we're back from our break, and back to our usual schedule of every other Friday releasing these podcasts. And this time, we're back with the closest thing to breaking news I think we've ever had on the podcast, which is to say, it's now three days out of date by the time you're getting this. To give some context, This past Tuesday, which was the 6th of October 2020, the EU's top court, the Court of Justice of the European Union, issued its judgment in three cases. One from the UK, where Privacy International is the sole claimant, one from France, where PI had also intervened, and one from Belgium. I'm here with our fantastic legal director and general counsel, Caroline Wilson-Palo, to talk about what happened. Okay, and just to be clear to everybody listening, as Caroline knows far too well, I'm not a lawyer. And so I am also trying to make sense out of everything that's happened in the past week. And I'm very much looking forward to Caroline helping me and everybody listening navigate all of this. So Caroline, first of all, welcome. Thank you. Second of all, what was this ruling all about and why was everybody making so much noise about it? Well, the most important aspect of this ruling is the the CJU made really clear that for the first time that even when countries are engaging in um, data collection for national security purposes, EU law applies. So that was sort of the the major victory for us coming out of, of this judgment was that the EU law will and the fundamental rights that are enshrined in EU law, which are protections of privacy, data protection, freedom of expression, will apply um, when nation states are asking service providers to process data for them. Um, and that, in this case, meant two different types of data processing. One was that in France and Belgium, they were asking uh, these telecommunications companies, in most cases, to retain data for long periods of time, just in case either their police or the intelligence services thought they might like to use the data in the future. And then in the UK, they were going even further than that. Um, They actually collected all the data themselves from the telecommunications providers, the UK intelligence services did and stored it. And in both cases, the Court of Justice um, had problems with those practices under European law. And so just, uh, again, me being the non-lawyer, just uh, I'm, I think I'm trying to make sense of this and please correct me um, as, I, as I go. But so this is the Court of Justice of the European Union, which is the, the highest court in the European Union, which is separate from the European Court of Human Rights, which is a different court that just uh, adjudicates on human rights. And so what's most interesting was that this was the Court of Justice of the EU 
which traditionally has never really said much about national security matters because it's not traditionally in the jurisdiction of the EU. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. So generally, we see that um, the EU has a carve out and it says that all of its member states can do their own thing when they're dealing with criminal um, matters, when they're dealing with national security matters. But that changes when um, the member states are asking private companies to do something, in this case, telecommunications providers. And that's because uh, the EU has decided through other laws like the e-privacy directive and the um, GDPR that they're going to put certain protections in place when member states are dealing with private companies and our personal data held by those private companies or or actually just communications data more broadly in the, in the case of the e privacy directive. And so um, this is now a relatively narrow area where actually EU law will apply, even though national security might be at issue. And the, the specific powers we're, we're talking about that were, were called into question, um, as you identified, there's, there's the, the French and the Belgians were requiring telecommunications companies, so like basically ISPs and, and telephone companies to retain data uh, and it seems, as ever, the UK decided to do to innovate on this idea um, and to grab the data directly. Is that correct? That's right. So the UK was still requiring the telecommunications providers to to cooperate with them. Um, but but then, yeah, instead of just saying, "Hold on to this data, we'll come to you later if we need it," they the UK just took it all, so they could run their own searches, do their own thing later. Because the UK always has to be a little bit more batshit crazier when it comes to surveillance than every other country on the, on the earth. Okay, that's just me. You don't have to agree with that. No so how did we actually get to the court? Like what, what, why? Because like, I have to say, um, just to sound like the old man, um, the policies, at least in, in France and Belgium that you're talking about, um, I've been working on for almost 20 years, basically right before 9-11, uh, was when the the idea of forcing companies to retain data was first floated. And back then it was a crazy idea. And then of course 9-11 happened, the Bush administration begged Europe to start doing this. And so Europe thought, well, maybe it's not such a crazy idea. And it took them years to actually deploy it. Um, and now here we are practically 20 years later and the Court of Justice is weighing in on it. How What, what got us to this point? That is a good question and uh, and a lot of different things. So you've actually taken us quite far back in history, but that is where it started, which is when um, Europe passed a data retention directive um, back in the mid 2000s, they instructed all the states to pass their own national laws um, talking about how they would instruct service providers to to retain this data. And that led to a series of legal challenges, which actually led to two earlier court cases, both decided by, by the same court, the Court of Justice of the European Union, um, which we commonly call Digital Rights Ireland, DRI, and uh, Tele2 Watson. One, the first one coming out of Ireland, the second one, second one coming out of Sweden and the UK. And in both of those two cases, the court pretty solidly said um, data retention, when it's general and indiscriminate, which is when the states were asking companies to retain all the data. They weren't just honing in on specific person's data because they had some sort of suspicion around why that person might be a suspect um, that was not permissible under European law. But the, the way the CJU works is that um, it doesn't initiate cases on its own. Instead, 
the various member states' courts ask the court questions. Um, and in this case, there were referrals from all three states asking the court these questions. Does EU law apply in the national security context? And then if it does, what are the safeguards that um, EU law demands when we're engaging in data retention or or data collection. And so that whole process has, again, kicked off in 2015 in the UK, 2016 in France, and I believe also Belgium. And now we're here in 2020 with a decision. It all takes a while. (laughs) It sounds like that. And um, can you just talk to me about the data itself um, and the the type of power um, that is being questioned? So um, the data itself is mainly communications data, and this is not the content of the communication. This is not when you're writing in your email what you're writing to your friend. Instead, this is the sort of who, what, when, and where of the communication, who you're sending it to, when you sent it, sort of what sort of device and where you sent it from, and also the details about who you're sending it to. Um, And the court reiterated, which it had in those previous two decisions as well, that actually, even though this isn't the content of the communications, it's still incredibly sensitive data. It can tell us um, a whole lot about a person knowing who they're in contact with, when they're in contact with that person. And therefore, it really requires the same level of privacy protections as um, the core content of the communication. And this is the type of data that typically is actually stored by these telecommunications service providers just in the regular course of their business, because, of course, they need to connect you to whoever you're talking to. Um, But under those other European laws that I talked about before, uh, the e-privacy directive, the GDPR and the predecessor to data protection regulation, the uh, predecessor data protection directive, um, companies weren't supposed to hold that data for very long. That was actually privacy protection. They should only hold it for as long as it's, they need to to provide a service to you because it is so sensitive. And yet what the states were trying to do with data retention was to um, keep them to hold it for a whole lot longer. Um, and that's when problems are caused. <laughs> yeah. And, and okay, so tell me... Like- um, how was it that the court was ruling this week? What was the journey for all these cases? So you said it was 2015 and 2016 in the UK and France and, and probably Belgium. What did it take to get these cases to the court this week? So <laughs> beyond um, having the, the national courts ask the question, um, then we had briefing, which is we did our written submissions to the courts. Then we had oral arguments last year. That was in September of 2019, where everyone showed up in the court. It was a pretty neat experience, especially because so many states were interested in this. I think we had um, 20 plus countries and other representatives of other parties in the courtroom um, arguing about this case. So it was quite a large um, to do there. And that was in September 2019. And then after that happened, um, the Court of Justice of the European Union is is a little bit different than some other courts in that they have um, an advocate general who issues a sort of preliminary opinion um, around how he or she thinks the case should be decided. And in this case, that opinion came out in January of 2020 and I think primed everyone to suspect uh, that we would get a judgment somewhat similar to what we have gotten, which is one that especially said that EU law applies in this context. And then, of course, we got the final judgment earlier this week from the court. And as a, as a non-lawyer, I look at lawyers around court judgments um, 
And I, I wonder, is this like Christmas Day for you? Is it like, oh my gosh, I can't wait. I can't sleep the night before. I got to find out what the court's going to say. You wake up and you, and you, you're, you're scouring the, the internet to find the decision. How does it feel? Uh, what's it like to, to, to do this and to read through? And how, how do you feel now that you've read it? Like, talk to me. Like, what was the day like? <laughs> That's a good question. Yeah, I mean, it is always a little bit nerve wracking. We've obviously put so much effort and so many people have put so much effort into the case that we are really excited to see what the judgment is going to be. What is the court actually going to say? So yes, we um, did quite a lot of preparation actually ahead of the judgment, knowing that it was coming. I think we had about a week, week and a half, half notice that it was going to come out um, this last Tuesday. And so we tried to prepare, um, especially since in this case, we had the Advocate General's opinion, we read, reread that and tried to get a sense of what the arguments might be and how the, the court itself might decide. But then, of course, on the morning, we had to scramble to um, get the judgments themselves. And in this case, there are two different judgments, um, one specific to the UK and the other one focusing on France and, and Belgium. Um, they're interrelated and closely connected and refer to each other. Um, but then to add to the compliment here, the um, UK judgments in English and the French and Belgian judgments in French. Eventually, they'll be in all the different languages of the um, EU court, but right now <laughs> they are just that. So we had to collectively read them using our different language skills and try to piece together what they meant. And uh, that's always fun to do because we're trying to react as quickly as we can on the day to let others know um, what the what the judgment means. <laughs> and so as the, as the picture became clearer? Did, did you feel vindicated? Um, do you feel like what, what's, how do you feel right now is now that we have this clarity or do we not have clarity? Well, I think we have, we definitely have some clarity and, and I think generally we view the judgment as, as positive and a step in the right direction or the judgments, I should say. Um, but we are still, there's another step to go in this process, which is that, um, as I said before, these were uh, judgments based on questions asked by the national level courts. So now all these cases need to go back to the national level courts in the UK, in France, and in Belgium to be applied by those courts. And so we actually don't know entirely for sure how this is going to change the law in each country because we need to wait to see what those national courts um, will say. So while this is quite exciting and really interesting to get this pronouncement, um, by the CJU, there are still some further steps before we can <laughs> say that we've definitely um, finished finished the process. Okay, uh, the law moves slowly. <laughs> this is uh, this is not what I was advertised when I watched all the movies and watched all the TV shows about the law. Um, but yeah, okay, we can we can take our time on this. So if we're going to take our time on this, can you talk through the 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 core of the rulings? Um, what what we can take away from it um, as we await its implementation or the next stages uh, in national courts. Definitely. So as I said before, one of the most important points coming out of the ruling is that whenever member states are asking um, service providers to, to process data for them, EU law is going to apply. And that means privacy protections, um, and freedom of expression protections and all the other fundamental rights that are actually protected by the Charter of Fundamental Rights. Um, and so that will have a big impact for a lot of actually countries, not just 
the three that were involved in, in this particular set of cases, but but across the EU, because um, saying that EU law applies and then applying it in these contexts of data retention and data collection, what the court has said is that you can't do this in a general and indiscriminate manner. With I'll put put a few exceptions and asterisks next to that um, when it comes to data retention, because that side of the decision is more complicated, but said very clearly for data collection in the UK that you can't do this in a general and indiscriminate um, manner, which is what we often refer to as mass surveillance, where you're just collecting up everyone's data um, without any suspicion to think that they, you have any reason uh, to think that they were involved in some sort of criminal activity or problematic activity. So um, that is going to be a new rule that all of the European countries are going to need to take into account and they're going to need to look at their own laws because especially over the last decade or so, I think mass surveillance has become a very popular technique, <laughs> not just um, through data retention, but also in other um, forms uh, of like collection or interception of content even. And I think the, the states may need to go back and think a little bit more about whether or not those laws now actually conform to, to EU law. Just to pick up on that, like, I think we we need to recognize um, that governments have dramatically transformed their powers in the last twenty years. Because um, when I was growing up, watching uh, learning about law on on TV shows, the whole idea was that the state could interfere with your life um, in an investigation, in an active investigation. They should be able to get access um, to information about you if they suspect you. Um, and um, and what has changed is, as you say, this shift to mass surveillance, which is the, the, the state is interfering or the, the state is accumulating power even without you being under investigation. That's a huge change. And so arguably, I think it's it's the courts catching up to that innovation. So is it fair to say that what's coming out now is, well, it's, it's good news? Yes. Yes, I think it is good news. I mean, as always, um, legal decisions have quite a lot of nuance to them. They're quite complex. <laughs> but I think overall, it's good news is that courts are starting to grapple with these issues and try to put safeguards in place to protect us. Because um, like you said, traditionally, the traditional conception we all have of when the state can get access to our private information in these really narrow circumstances when there's reasonable suspicion are um, what we still argue are required by the various fundamental rights and human rights frameworks that exist around the world. Um, and yet, States have developed mass surveillance regimes without um, being tested under those frameworks. And now courts are starting to catch up and, and test and in many cases find those regimes wanting, um, either because of the mass nature in the first place or because they don't have sufficient safeguards in place to make sure that that data, since it is being collected on all of us, can't be abused. That's fascinating. Like, um, I just think back... Uh to the fact that this is a this is a legacy essentially of of 9/11 and not um it's it's practically a legacy as as I mentioned before of the Bush administration which is uh Europe had this crazy idea of data retention but never bothered to implement because they thought this would never fly uh and then um a few weeks after 9/11 George Bush himself writes to the EU saying hey you want to help us um, fight this global war on terror, um, you're going to implement 
data, you're going to change your data protection laws, the very laws that protect people, uh, and allow for data retention, and essentially opening the door to mass surveillance. And what's interesting is that in the US, at least, um, in the years that followed, there's been a reckoning, and there's been a political reckoning when it comes to surveillance and a legal reckoning with um, pushbacks. Even the 2008 election was very much like had a very strong element of um, of debate around these types of powers, um, and uh, there were numerous court decisions in the U.S. And then, of course, with the Snowden revelations, there's been legislative change in the U.S. And it's just it's taken so long for. Europe to have this moment of reckoning, and I and I don't get it because when we when we when you step back and you you read the news and you read the commentary, there's always this narrative that the U.S. is crazy when it comes to surveillance powers and all of this, and uh, look how terrible it is over there. But Europe, oh, if only like Europe is wonderful; it has its GDPR, and isn't that great? And what we're finding with cases like these, and when we dig beneath the surface, which is where. PI lives, um, we see that the world's a much dirtier place and surveillance powers are, well, every government on the planet is seeking these powers. But what's kind of shocking is that it takes 20 years. It does. It does. I mean, uh, yeah, I guess in the case of data retention, like you said, (laughs) it really has taken 20 years. In some cases, it's been more like five, six, but it does take a while. Unfortunately, that's often the case with the law. It always takes it a little while to catch up with innovations um, in technology. And of course, part of what we do is try to make that um, happen a little bit faster. <laughs> but courts are deliberative bodies and they take a while to, to think about these issues, rightly so, because they're very important um, for our rights and our security and need to be um, carefully considered. Um, but I think that now we have a framework in place going forward that will be uh, beneficial. Can you talk through that framework just a little bit um, so we can get an understanding of like what the judgments say about data retention, what they say about national security, what they say about analysis of the data? Sure. So um, I'll take the UK judgment first. So as I said, with regard to the UK judgment, it uh, focuses on bulk data collection, which is what the UK intelligence services were doing. They were asking um, telecommunications providers to essentially turn over um, a large amount of data that they held on their users uh, directly to the intelligence agencies who would then store that data um, and access it based on some internal controls, but essentially as, as they saw fit. There was no independent outside authorization either for the acquisition of um, the data in the first place or for the internal use of it. And what the court said first and foremost is that when you're collecting all of the data from a service provider that um, without sort of thinking about, is there a reason that I have to collect this data with regard to a particular person or a particular account, then that is general and indiscriminate um, collection of data. And that is a violation of EU law. Um, and so that general and indiscriminate collection is, is no longer permissible. And among other things that you need to have in place in order to make it permissible would be uh, not general indiscriminate collection ever, but to make sort of a more limited collection permissible would be a clear law um, publicly available. And that was one of the problems to begin with in this case was that um, this was all done under these secret directives that were um, derived from a 1984 law, (laughs) ironically. Secret directives 
in British law, the, the country that brands itself as the land of Magna Carta had secret directives. Exactly. So no one knew um, until actually some of the the oversight that became more robust post-Snowden revelations, no one knew that this was even happening in the UK, even though it had been happening um, since the early 2000s. And um, this didn't come to light until 2015. And I'm sorry, just to get really angry for a second, like I was in Parliament, in the House of Lords, constantly taking part in the what we thought was a national democratic debate where um, across the political spectrum, there were varying opinions. And uh, eventually there was a relative um, agreement that the government was going too far. And so safeguards were implemented. And so the UK government then said, screw this, we're going to go to Europe and get a, a European agreement on this. So already the government circumvented the democratic safeguards by going to Europe and trying to get a European um, uh, directive on data retention, which they then brought home saying, hey, we're being forced to by the, these big, mean Europeans who are forcing us to uh, implement the power we've wanted all along. But look, we did that. We did all that democratic debate. And yet you're saying, regardless of all that, which all happened in the 2000s, you just said, nonetheless, in secret, they were going around that entire debate and getting the data anyways. That's right. That's right. That just pisses me off. Like, <laughs> you know, we could always say, oh, the courts and that whole process is anti-democratic. You know, we should have a national debate. We had a national debate. We had parliamentarians who, when they, we started the debate, had no idea what communications data was, had no idea how the Internet worked. But by the end of the debate, they got it and they understood it was problematic. It was even in manifestos and election manifestos in the UK. So this thing mattered. And yet beneath the radar where nobody digs because it's against the law to dig, we find that they had secret goddamn law. Sorry, I just had to rant. I'll take it away from me, please. <laughs> no, no, I understand the frustration. And, and that's exactly why the court is putting in this rule in place, which is saying, we need to have these sort of democratic debates around these powers. If you're going to use these powers, which are incredibly intrusive, um, they need to be spelled out on the face of the law so that we can have these democratic debates. So everyone can understand what we are agreeing to. And that's what's necessary in a democratic society. And then that's the next question, actually, is um, then whatever the state decides it wants to do and puts in the law, that actually has to be strictly necessary because of the strong privacy intrusion that it involves, which means that it really has to be something that needs to happen um, because there's no other way, essentially, to collect this information. It's not just something that's useful that might be helpful, but um, that is that is really necessary. And then on top of that, the third question is also, is this proportionate? Which is sometimes, even if something is incredibly necessary, it's still not something that we would conscience doing in a democratic society. It's just against our values. And uh, an example of that, talking about that other court you were talking about very early on in the podcast, the European Court of Human Rights, um, has decided, for instance, that uh, the UK is not allowed to collect uh, DNA on all of us to have a DNA database, because certainly that might be useful, but it's so incredibly intrusive that it would never be proportionate to do so. So that's an example of the proportionality analysis that now also has to apply if the state is going to try to collect large amounts of communications data. So what is the broader result or impact of this decision? 
it really is a guide for all of Europe and arguably the world um, as to what is required when these types of privacy violations happen, which is if you're going to try to engage in mass surveillance, fundamental rights do still apply and there are real limitations um, on, on what you can do. And that means that I think that a lot of different countries are going to have to take another look at their mass surveillance regimes and hopefully uh, cut them down and make them um, much more reasonable and also make sure that they are, there's a legal basis for what they're doing and that they've had that public debate, which is so crucial in democratic societies. But if I could, um, being executive director of PI and having to be up close to the law as it goes through its iterations, um, I wish was this was the moment in the movie where, you know, we pop the champagne, socially distanced, um, and, uh, and we say, hey, uh, battle is won, uh, let's move on to the next thing. The reality is um, the law is not self-executing. It takes people. It takes people to, to make sure that the court decisions get sent back down, it, it, that the courts nationally take the next steps that that the governments don't create secret law again uh, and ignore court decisions as, as they have been known to do. Um, there's a hell of a lot of work that's still to come, right? Certainly. And as you described that, it makes me think again back to when we were sitting in this courtroom back in September 2019 with 20 plus states and all of their lawyers arrayed against us. And the, the claimants in these various um, cases were almost all civil society organizations and NGOs <laughs> who are obviously much smaller and um, less well resourced. Uh, and these are really important um, big fights that we are taking on and, and we're proud to do them. But it does take a lot of effort and a lot of our our time. <laughs> and to and as you say, like in that court, you had so many governments with their deep pockets, with their esteemed lawyers, um, with charging remarkable amounts, uh, defending the powers that the state wanted and that the state wanted to keep secret. And then there was there was all these little these little NGOs taking on this incredible power of the state, not just the, the power of the state to do surveillance, but the power of the state to marshal the resources to try to defend their powers when scrawny little people like us call them into question. Um, and I just got to say, like, um, I don't say this often enough to the the lawyers at PI that we work with, but what you have to do and the 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 the, the types of fights you have to stand up against and, and the, the Goliaths, let's say, it's incredible that we have won so often and we've made ground so often considering this the everything stacked against us so congratulations like just take a bow for a second i know you don't um and uh and i know it's, it's not like the movies but like it is pretty cool to have a court like the a highest court of the european union um going through our arguments and saying huh you know what I think that little NGO in London actually had some good points. It is. It is pretty neat. And I must give due credit uh, to all of our amazing outside counsel, our pro bono lawyers in most cases who work with us too, who do an amazing job. Um, but yeah, it is pretty neat that we are able to have this impact. And I think that's one of the wonderful things about the courts is that you can take these fights to them. And if you have the better legal argument, then you can win no matter what level of resources you have, as long as you have enough resources to bring the fight. <laughs> yeah. So we don't, at, at PI, we don't try to hide um, 
or gloss over how hard this is. So if you if you do want to see the complexity of this case, you have to come to our website at privacyinternational.org um, and under the section for legal action, uh, you can see whether it's this case or the many other cases we're taking, you can see in great detail all of our filings, all of our findings, and all of our analyses, and you can see the amount of work that goes in to the hope that a bunch of senior judges will ultimately agree with us that we have a point. And, um, and so doing all that work, and so while I'm directing you to online resources, doing all that work is hard. This took years. And even when you win, you still have to take it to the next step. And even when you get past that step, they might try to circumvent you in another step. It takes constant vigilance. And so I would, uh, if you want to know more about these types of stories of our cases and follow us as we do these, go to our um, action.privacyinternational.org resource where you can sign up to get news um, uh, about what we're doing as we're doing it and then our analyses after the fact. And we're so lucky, as Caroline mentioned, to have our pro bono counsel who, who work for us uh, for free, but there are still extraordinary costs that go into all these cases. And we're a charity with limited funds. So any support you can give us through a donation would be very much appreciated as well. You can go to support.privacyinternational.org um, and uh, donate to us there. So um, yeah, Caroline, thank you for joining. And again, thank you to you and all of the people who have been involved in this case. Um, it's uh, it's been a journey and I look forward to the next steps. Thank you. Thank you so much, Gus. It was my pleasure. And thanks to everybody for listening. You can get involved with this topic, as we say, by visiting our website, joining our, our mailings and go contact us as well. And you can like and subscribe to this podcast on the various platforms you use. Um, and it's also available from our uh, on our website at privacyinternational.org. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, Mastodon, YouTube and Facebook. And thank you very much for listening. The music is courtesy of Sepia and Glassboy, which is licensed under Creative Commons.